Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at Exeter University, and today we're talking to him about his new book, A Brief History of Portugal, just published by Robinson, an imprint of Little Brown. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Congratulations on the book. Many thanks. Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us about why you're interested in Portugal and why you chose to write in this very vivacious, fun, colourful, informative kind of way? Yes, I first visited Portugal in 1990. I spent several weeks there and I really enjoyed it. And A, that encouraged me to go back. B, it encouraged me to find out more about it. And C, it encouraged me to communicate it. I, you know, I write a lot, but I don't find it easy to write about things that don't interest me and don't excite me. And I find Portugal a very sort of invigorating country to be in. And I like the Portuguese. Now, it's worth saying that all the way through this book, you, you, you nod occasionally uh, to the tourist experience. And in fact, the front cover uh, underneath A Brief History of Portugal, Jeremy Black has written on it, Indispensable for Travellers. All the way through the book, we get references to restaurants, interesting places to visit, um, cafes that you've enjoyed going to. So t- tell us, what, what's the kind of, of purpose of the book that you've prepared? Well, it's designed to be one that you can either take with you or that you can read at home. I, in fact, was due to spend a week in Portugal in June taking a group of people around. Well, obviously, neither I nor they will be going there. But one can travel in one's mind and historians travel in both time and space. And in a sense, one of the things to do if one's sitting at home and thinking about other places is to actually engage with the practicalities of them in time and space and as you said as far as the book itself is concerned one of the things I also discuss is the traveler experience there and more specifically the tourist experience from the 18th century onwards. Now you remind us in the book that the modern tourist industry in Portugal begins more or less in the 1960s uh, the age of mass travel and so on what kind of society or culture did these early tourists experience? Well, the early jet tourists, I mean, Faro, uh, the airport there in the Algarve was opened in 1965. Uh, they were coming into a society that was really very different to that which had become newly wealthy through the long economic boom in Northern Europe. I mean, I can remember, in fact, when I went in in um, 1990s, still being surprised at some aspects of what was available or what wasn't available to eat or drink. And that was even more the case in the 1960s. And of course, you're still there in a period of uh, very much social conservatism and one in which religion is extraordinarily important. Um, for me, it was reminiscent of spending a month in Ireland in the, Re- the Republic in 1977. And, you know, very much one noticed the absolute centrality of the church to, in particular, the female population of many of the villages. And uh, the difference for the average tourist to Portugal in the 1960s, as indeed to Spain, is they were mostly going to purpose-built resorts, particularly in the case of Portugal on the Algarve, um, and obviously in Spain on the Mediterranean coasts. 
And that meant that they didn't see an enormous amount of what was going on in Portugal. Um, and to that extent, some of the tourists I cite from the 18th and 19th century are more instructive because they're going to places which are not tourist resorts. Obviously, they are protected by their wealth and their connections, but nevertheless, they are, um, as it were, getting in entrees into society and seeing society uh, without any special um, special resorts. Um, so, you know, when I was talking about Thomas Pelham going through in the 1770s, um, he very much is having to almost, as it were, camp in his in his carriage in order to find reasonable accommodation. Um, and there is a sense of being on the frontier there. Now, that was not the case by the time you were in the age of mass tourism. So it was a different experience. And today, if you go to Portugal, um, the facilities for tourists are more widespread across the country. Um, but nevertheless, there are areas you can go to, let's say the far northeast, where there are not all that many tourists and where you can see a society in which, uh, although a lot of people have left the land, there is still um, a lot of poverty and a certain degree of um, of immobility almost the the talented the energetic have often left the villages leaving people who are older and shall we say um more sort of well not so enterprising and there's a political difference as well i think you mentioned in the book between the north and much of the rest of the country in the 1960s as mass tourism began what was the political situation in portugal well uh you've still got um the Salazar regime, and of course that regime continues after his illness and then death. Um, it's a authoritarian example of the 1930s, what the Portuguese called the Estado uh, Novo, the new state. Um, and it wasn't a uh, fascist state like uh, Franco's Spain, but it was certainly a Catholic authoritarian state. And it was one that um, was engaged in difficult warfare in Africa, where it was still a major colonial power, Angola, Mozambique, uh, the Cape Verde Islands, Portuguese Guinea. And that meant there was conscription. That was a very powerful drain on the state uh, and on the morale and energy of a lot of its population. Um, it's difficult to know what would have happened. As you know, I'm interested in counterfactualism. It's difficult to know what would have happened but for that war. I mean, it's very interesting that authoritarian states could continue really quite long uh, commitments of that type. You can think uh, of Cuba, which sent a lot of troops to, in fact, Angola in the late 70s and 1980s and took quite a fair amount of casualties. But because it was a police state, it was able to go on doing so. Uh, in the case of Portugal, I think it's fair to say that it was um, you, you got people saying, oh, this can't go on. But the practicality was as late as the beginning of the 1970s, it was very unclear what was going to happen there. And the 1970s are a key period, aren't they? Because I think you explained that's when women get the vote for the first time in Portugal. 
Well, I think I keep hearing for many reasons. I mean, I would say Portugal's position in the world changes dramatically with the end of it being a colonial power. I mean, it goes on, for example, holding Macau in China. But it, in effect, is the end of Portugal as a, as a colonial power with this sense of a mission in the world. So that's a very important change. Um, the end of the Salazarist system is followed by uh, major cultural social changes uh, and economic and political ones. Uh, women gaining the vote is one example of those. Um, but um, the the in, the introduction of democratic government, I mean, there'd been democratic government earlier in Portuguese history, but the introduction of democratic government, reintroduction is important. And also another key element in Portugal is that it's in the front line of the Cold War. I mean, there was uh, a major possibility uh, that the communists would take over. They certainly appear to have planned to have done so, and there's large-scale sort of political instability in the mid-1970s. And it's interesting to consider what would have happened if it had had a common border with a, um, uh Eastern Pact uh, state, but it doesn't. Um, and um, so it stays in a slightly wobbly fashion for a little bit, but it stays in the Western system. And I think that's a very important moment in Portuguese history. Tell us a little bit more about the Salazarist regime. It's not fascist, but it is authoritarian. What, what does that mean in practice? Uh, well, it certainly means it's authoritarian in the sense that it has a secret police. Um, it has... Um, a state ideology and the state ideology is very much one that we would associate with conservatism. But I think it needs to be underlined that Salazar himself and his system was anti-fascist. Um, he did not in a left-wing sense, but in the sense that he didn't like um, what he called the what were called the blue shirts or the national syndicalists. They were purged um, in 1934. And you see similar tension, of course, in states like Hungary or Romania between right-wing regimes and fascists. And one of the great mistakes is to accept the sort of left-wing interpretation, which runs together, you know, runs the two together. It's just simply uh, not not accurate. Um, uh, Salazar also, uh, you know, his relations with Franco are uneasy. I think that's the uh, that's a fair. He, you know, he didn't want a left wing regime in in Spain, but equally, um, he didn't want an over mighty an over mighty Franco. So that you know, it's a, it was a difficult relationship for Salazar in particular. He was strongly um, associated with uh, the Catholic Church. The Patriarch of Lisbon was a personal friend of his. And he had really scant time for fascism because he saw it as anti-clerical. And I would argue that his dictatorship was based on tradition rather than on fascist modernity. Um, now, um, I think that's quite important as a conception. There's a sort of Catholic corporatism there, um, which has parallels in some of the other Catholic states. Uh, in Europe, and indeed, for example, in Vargas's um, Brazil in that period. Um, now, uh, it, it, the one has to be careful here. There are elements of uh, the uh, Salazarist state which overlap 
with elements in particular of Mussolini's Italy. Um, but there is all, you know, for example, it's hostility to communism, atheism, socialism, anarchism, democracy and liberalism and all the rest of it. Um, but equally, um, it's in many respects more in accordance with a uh, 19th century, a 19th century strand of Portuguese politics than it is with this attempt to engage a, a mass uh, modernized uh, state, um, which you see as part of the ideology of both Mussolini and even more clearly, of course, uh, uh, of Hitler. I mean, what I would start off, if you, if you really ask me to conclude it, I would say that Salazar was Catholic an anti-Republican. He'd been horrified by the First Republic, uh, the one of the 19-teens and early 1920s. He saw that as chaotic. He was horrified by its anti-clericalism. Uh, in 1933, he sort of commented on what he saw as our revolutions, our inca apparent incapacity to govern ourselves, the rottenness of our administration. You know, he's talking about the earlier situation there. Um, and that leads him to sort of seek what he sees as stability and the stability is authoritarian but that's part and parcel of the nature of that strand of Portuguese um, uh, politics. I was fascinated by the way you emphasised the, the corporate nature of the state in this period but also noticed for example that um, Port Portugal has some of the highest uh, sub-Saharan maternal lineages of any country in Europe. H how do these things go together? Obviously strongly authoritarian state during much of the 20th century, but also this big imperial reservoir uh, um, lying behind that as well. Yes, um, and I think in the case of Portugal, I think one needs to look back at the sense of a living history there, that the um, imperial legacy was very, very important, and it was kept alive in part by a Catholicism that was very significant. Um, this gave the Portuguese regime a sense of identity, a sense of, you know, um, something that it was, uh, that it was, uh, that gave it value. I mean, I commented on the Museum of Design in Lisbon, which you can go and visit, and it has the central site of the former bank that handled the currencies of Portugal's colonies. Now, in 1962, they put in a large and very colourful wall mosaic, which is, I can tell you, very attractive, uh, slightly mis well, considerably misleading, but it gives you a sense of the ideology at play. Um, you know, colonisation was presented in benign terms. There's friars teaching natives. There's other natives farming. Portuguese soldiers are not shown engaged in any violent acts. And that very much seeks to present an ideology which, to put it mildly, was undermined by the um, rebellion, revolution, call it what you will, in Angola in 1961, but which nevertheless captures this idea of Portugal as having a role. Uh, and another thing I think I cited was the Atlas of Portugal, which was published in 1959 uh, and or, that's when the second edition comes out. And it has um, sort of text there in which it talks about the organic whole, the overseas provinces forming with the mother country, uh, an essentially Christian and humanitarian idea of unity, etc., etc., etc. 
so that um, this was a sort of notion of Portugal as having a mission. Now, you know, you might think, or people today might think that's absurd. It's no different to many other countries ranging from Imperial Britain to the Communist Soviet Union, which have seen themselves as having a mission and as that of giving themselves uh, a, a weight and a role. And if you want to press the analogy further, you then have the interesting question as to where, how far Portugal's modern history is to be seen with reference to that famous remark about Britain and, you know, the, issue, the problem of discovering a role. I mean, you can make the same point about Russia, of course. Um, and I think that in the case of Portugal, what is interesting and instructive is that um, although there were, were problems, um, the translation to a different politics and a different society is one that seems on the whole, and you know, I've got to be careful here, seems on the whole to be working relatively well. And you're speaking to me, of course, from uh, Northern Ireland. I mean, there's no equivalent in Portugal, including in, for example, Madeira or the Azores of a violent separatist movement. Um, the, as you correctly say, the politics is different in different parts of the country, but they are national political parties. Um, and I think that's an important point. And as a relatively poor country, it has benefited from European Union largesse or recycled money from the wealthier parts of Europe, whatever term you wish to use. I think it does have problems. The corporatist character which you referred to, ironically, of course, made the transition to the to left of centre uh, easier. And of course, the corporatist big state owned uh, concerns has been associated as the left so often is with um, inefficiencies in the economy, with um, a result high rate of unemployment. So there's that an issue. And there is also the common pressure you see in so many countries between uh, relatively prosperous urban centers to which talented people go and where there's high price of property. And here we're talking about the two major cities in particular, Lisbon and Porto, and the situation in much of the rural area where there's depopulation or at least a reduction in population and where there's considerably more poverty. So there are problems there and one would be naive to ignore those problems. Um, but it's managed to, despite, you know, it, for example, it took a lot of hit in the austerity of the 20 teens, but it didn't have the political strain that one saw in Greece during that period. And its politics haven't proved as dysfunctional as Italy's. Mm. So as well as having this uh, substantial empire of its own, I think you mentioned that Portuguese is now the sixth most commonly spoken language in the world. And as well as being part of this huge European project in which a number of Portuguese politicians have had uh, some important roles, you also describe Portugal as being an informal member of the British Empire. What do you mean by that? Well, for a lot, I'm not so sure I would say it's now an informal member, but it was an, certainly an informal member in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and prior to that, there had been periods like 14th century, 1660s, when the uh, English state had provided very important military support to um, oppose sort of Spanish um, attacks. Um, 
So when it's referred to as an informal part of the uh, British Empire, it's usually thought of in terms of the uh, close economic links between Britain and Portugal, uh, and in particular with Portugal's major colony of the 18th century, which was Brazil, and also the reliance of the Portuguese on, as it were, the British protection system, the Royal Navy, for example, moored in the Tagus in 1735, 36, 37 to deter a Spanish attack or the Duke of Wellington um, in command uh, of British forces and significantly, of course, in effect of the Portuguese army uh, during the Peninsular War against Spanish and French-backed attack or again, the British in 1762 against Spanish and French-backed attack. Um, and it was very much an informal part of the British Empire throughout the 19th century. And that was despite the religious difference, obviously, it was a sort of devout Catholic state. Um, but uh, the, the idea that Portugal was England's oldest ally, the idea of a commonality of interest, the suspicion that both of the powers had towards Spain, it was quite important. I mean, it wasn't the only country that was informally a part of the British Empire. You could argue that to a degree in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, the Dutch were, and that that's helped to maintain uh, the Dutch Empire in the East Indies. But the Portuguese were the most obvious example of the state in that position. Mm. Now, your book is arranged uh, as a really attractive historical sweep through from early peoples to uh, the present day. Um, if tourists are going to Portugal now, what do they see of early occupation or indeed of legacies of Roman culture? Uh, well, not as much. I think I made the point that they, they don't see as much as they would see if they went to Spain, and they don't see as much in Spain as they would to Italy. I mean, the, the centres of um, Roman power in Iberia, as indeed earlier of Carthaginian influence, uh, were very much in what we would now call Spain. Um, so there's only a limited amount of uh, early material. But what I do try to do at every stage, you're right, is to draw attention to what sites survive. And for example, as you'll know, I talk about early uh, Neolithic sites that can be uh, visited and some of which are, you know, fairly dramatic. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned the monoliths near Evora, uh, which are really some of, you know, the largest uh, megaliths going. Um, so there's early sites there. Um, what I would say is that uh, as far as Iberia goes, Portugal itself is a relatively poor um, sort of uh, partner um, until one gets the enormous access of wealth that comes from its expansion in the 15th century, uh, first along the west coast of Africa, where in particular it's the first of the European states that gains maritime access to gold sources there. And then, of course, uh, to the addition uh, very rapidly uh, of uh, links to India, links to Brazil, uh, and then links via Malacca in what is now Malaya round to China and indeed to Japan. So the Portuguese have created um, by the 1550s um, a astonishing uh, range of maritime connections. And that helps to 
finance some dramatic architecture. I mentioned uh, the works, for example, at Delem, most prominently, uh, which are easy to visit because they're just west of Lisbon or centre of Lisbon, and you can readily go there by public transport, and they're very pleasant and interesting, although quite crowded to go around. Um, and, of course, the other place that uh, tourists go to uh, with great alacrity is a Porto, uh, I'm not talking about the beaches of the Algarve at the moment, is a Porto uh, where there is now a you know, rapid transit system in from the airport to the city centre. Now, that was not the um, centre of governance by the time we're talking about. So it doesn't have such um, uh, dramatic uh, and far-flung uh, sort of royal buildings. But it also has enough there to show um, the extent to which uh, both church and state leaves a powerful legacy that tourists can enjoy. Um, and if I was going to a Porto, the thing I would recommend is to go to the cathedral, which is not particularly an attractive cathedral at the ground level. They will ask you, uh, well, they won't ask you, you have the option where they sell the postcards of going up to the first floor of the cloisters for a very modest sum of euros. And they have some wonderful examples of the fantastic Portuguese um, um, ceramic art um, there, which, I, you know, which, which I've always found very, very attractive. Now, you have a totally different experience if you go to the beaches, of course, uh, although there's nothing to stop people who go to the beaches hiring a car driving north from the Algarve, you would quickly leave the beaches behind. And if you go 50 miles north, uh, you're in countryside where there are very few people indeed. So there's nothing to say that one should be incompatible with the other. And it might well, in fact, be the cheapest way to go into southern Portugal, just as the cheapest way to go <laughs> into uh, parts of southern Spain is to fly to Malaga, ignore, ignore the beaches and go north. Um, so I would say the exactly the same thing um, uh, for the Algarve and, you know, uh, the area to the north, the Alentejo is, is, is very, very beautiful. And, um, you know, uh, I, I quoted one of the tourists, Oswald Crawford, a British chap who went there in the early uh, 1870s and he refers to sort of orchards of figs and almond trees. Well, near the coast. Those have, have largely gone. I mean, uh, there were over 20 million visitors there in 2017. Uh, but if you go further north, as I said, um, uh, you will find that um, that the you know the plains of the Altengenjo are uh, Altengenjo are, are are nowhere near as uh, as busy. And you know, you've got your Neolithic sites, you've got your Roman sites. Um, uh, years ago, I, I I remember going to Evora. And going to see the um, the osiery there, you know, one of these places where um, a chapel of bones, you know, um, so it's the skeleton of about five thousand monks, and it's uh, a, a very vivid sight. So let's put it like that. In what is a very attractive and interesting city, um, and it's a reminder that you know Europe contains many contrasts as well. I mean, not that it's the only osiery in in Europe that survives. Well, Jeremy, all of this and much more in this really fun and, and fact-filled Brief History of Portugal you've just published with Robinson, an imprint of Little Brown. Thank you so much for coming on to the show to talk about this today. Before we wind up, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? 
Yes, um, I've got in that series with um, Little Brown. Sorry, I'm a bit tired today. Do forgive me. I've got in that series um, the Mediterranean, which is coming out next, and Amazing. then for for next year the Caribbean and uh, strategy in World War Two. Um, and uh, you know, now that I've retired, I had assumed I'd be travelling widely. In fact including going to Portugal, as I mentioned in June. Well, I'm not, so I imagine I will be writing more. So, But um, I very much enjoy podcasts. I think that, uh, in a sense, one of the sadnesses for somebody who um, likes communicating is that this um, this lockdown, or whatever you want to call it, um, it, since it isn't a lockdown, we in a sense have locked ourselves down <laughs> rather than had somebody turn the keys on us. Um, this lockdown makes it harder to do the kind of element of teaching. I mean, you're an academic as well, which I don't think people always appreciate, which is that it is a form of performance art or performance. And like all forms of performance, it partly rests on engaging with an audience. So that when you're lecturing, I prefer to always lecture without notes so I can see the audience's faces, sense whether they're finding it interesting or not interesting, sense, you know, which way I ought to go. And of course, it's very, very difficult to do that. And it's a skill one has to learn uh, when one cannot see an audience and one cannot sense their mood or their views. So I think it's instructive for me. as I said, I mean, I find it harder to keep, uh, you know, I work very, very, very long hours, which is why I've been probably rather not lucid today. But I find it much harder to, to do that when I hadn't, one hasn't got the stimulus of interacting with other people directly. Well, listen, we appreciate you taking the time to come and speak to us today. It's a great little book, Brief History of Portugal, just published by Robinson, imprint of Little Brown. Jeremy, thanks for your time and thanks for being willing to come and talk about the book. A pleasure. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>